Welcome to Sedaris. My name's Dave, one of the pastors here. As you can tell, nostalgia is thick in the room tonight. You know, it is one more night here at the Nazarene Church, and we're glad that you're worshiping, praising Jesus with us. Um, if you haven't had a chance because you're doing the four-minute conversation, I want you to just take 10 to 20 seconds right now and, and think very hard. Could, could I help in one of these areas? And we're just going to actually, pat, but while it's fresh on your mind so that you don't forget at the end of the service, uh, would you think about serving in one of these areas? And we're going to pass the baskets around real quick just to make sure that we get anybody that's interested. Because this is such an important part of our transition that, that we all do this together. There's, anytime you transition, this is just a free life tip, okay? You want to... Uh, Leave well, which means that you understand what God has done, where He has brought you, the provision that He has brought to you in a season, and you want to remember that, and you want to celebrate that, and you want to think about that, um, and then you want to look forward to the future. And so we've been trying to do that as we prepare for the future at 10 a.m. at Hamilton uh, Middle School, and so um, this is me giving you time to think about, can you help us? Go to the future. Uh, I always want to say thank you to all of those over uh, the last 146 weeks who have served to help worship happen in this space at this time. Uh, there has been hundreds of people that have volunteered in a number of roles, and so we want to say thank you. Uh, it's hard to believe, 146 weeks we have at 515 been meeting in this space to the praise of God's glorious grace. And, and so we're, we're thankful that you guys uh, are here tonight to remember, but also looking forward to the future. How can I help? So we're going to go ahead and, if you had, you had time to think about this, could you help with children's ministry or with sound or AV? If you would, if you fill that out and, and, and you don't, and you change your mind, that's okay too. Uh, but we're going to, have we passed the baskets yet? Let's go ahead and pass those in so you can drop uh, your name and email. And if you haven't had time to fill it out, just, uh, you can always pass it at the end of the service too. But I want to grab it before you forget, because so often we can make an announcement and then you forget and, and you don't know where to put these and so you throw them away. So we don't want you to do that. Okay. I'm, I'm so excited. I mean, I'm, uh, as Ryan said, I, I tend in these moments to get very nostalgic, and, uh, but I'm also very excited about the future, about uh, 2018 and, and the next 146 weeks that we have as a church. There's something very ordinary about uh, meeting as a church to worship each and every week. Um, it's this consistent rhythm of life, uh, but in the ordinary, it's also extraordinary. And when you, when you think that for 146 weeks we've been here throwing a party to celebrate the risen Jesus, uh, it's quite remarkable. And uh, so if I cried today, that's what I'm thinking about, about how we've made it this far, and yet we have so much further to go. Um, after the service tonight, right down here, we're going to say thank you to the Church of the Nazarene that owns this building that's allowed us to rent space from them and, and has been so gracious and hospitable to us. So we're going we're gonna to set up the video camera down here. We'd ask you, if, if you're thankful at all, to just step in front of the camera for five seconds and say, 
thank you to Seattle First Church. You could say SFC, thank you. Uh, I've loved the space. And you could think of something that you're thankful for for the space. I don't want to give you the answer because your own heart will be stirred. Uh, but we'd ask, yeah, many of you to do that. And we're going to put together a little montage for them just to say thank you. And we're going to give it to them. So, getting nostalgic. Okay. Now on to the 146th sermon that, that we've preached from this platform, which is not always so high, by the way. This is a little extra height, which is very nice. I appreciate that. Um, if you've got your Bible, would you turn to Mark chapter 4? Mark chapter 4, in the gospel, according to Mark, we're going to see a story today, maybe a story that you've heard before. It has to do with wind and rain and a storm So the Lord has given us great wind today so that we might truly feel the reality of this moment. And as you're turning to Mark chapter 4, there's Bibles in the seat back in front of you if you need those, or you can Google Mark 4. I just want to recap a little bit of last week, and and Ryan talked about this really interesting idea, uh, which is that faith actually precedes understanding. And so often we think that understanding comes first and faith comes second, but As you read the Gospels, as you read the Bible, what you realize is that faith comes first and then understanding follows. And so we see faith as this great gift that God gives to us. And if you don't have faith, Jesus remains this untranslatable parable. I mean, we see Him, we hear about Him, but we can't truly understand Him. So how do you know if you have this gift? How do you know if you have the gift of faith. And some of us think, you know, if we have doubt, that means we don't have the gift of faith. Is that true? If you have doubts, does that mean that you don't have the gift? If you have fear, does that mean that you don't have the gift? If you feel forsaken, does it mean that you don't have the gift of faith? If you scream out to God in emotion and pain, does it mean that you don't have the gift of faith? I've thought those questions many a time in my life, and, and I hope today to try to answer those questions. But first thing I want to do is actually look at the last parable that Jesus preaches to the people right before the story that we're going to look at today, because I think it's so important to understand that actually the parable or the story today will help us to see the last parable Jesus teaches in action, okay? So, so if you've turned to Mark with me, in, in chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 30. This is uh, the third, or I think it's the third or the fourth parable that Jesus, or that Mark records for us in a row. And it says this, And Jesus said, speaking in parable, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of the mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all garden plants and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. So right after that, Jesus will go into, or or, or Mark will tell us the story of Jesus calming the sea. And we'll read that here in a second. And what's so interesting about this parable of the mustard seed is it says 
that the kingdom of God starts so small, but over time it grows. And what we realize when we, when we understand faith is that faith works the same as the kingdom. It starts small, like a seed, and over time it grows up into maturity. And we're going to look today, and we're going to get really clear on this point. What is the, ver- the first sign of real faith? A faith that might seem so small, but that could eventually grow up into the largest of all plants. So we're going to look at that today. And if you would, would you just pray with me that God would be here enlightening our eyes. Father God, we thank you for 146 weeks in this place to study your word together, to consider the truth of the gospel together, to praise the name of Jesus together. We don't take it for granted. We stop and we reflect on what a gift that is. God, I pray that as we look at this story today that you've recorded for us and kept from antiquity, that we would would see what you have for us. That anything that I say that's not from you would go in one ear and out the other. But if it's from you, God, that it might stir in our hearts, stir our affections up for your son Jesus. That's our prayer. That's our hope. And we thank you that you give us this community, this space, this time to do that. Jesus' name, amen. So before we even get into this story, what I want to do is read for you another story. A story that the original readers of this gospel would have known when this story began to be read amongst them. Okay, But since we're probably not as familiar as the Jews in this day would have been with this story, we might not go there. So I want to read it for us so that we can understand the full effect of what's happening. So we're going to look at an Old Testament passage in the book of Jonah. Uh, that, that great old Jonah who gets swallowed up by a big fish. But that's actually not what Jonah is about. It's about something way more important. And so we're going to read the first chapter of that. So if you just uh, listen along here. Uh, it says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because of its wickedness has come before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed to Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish." Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? For they knew that he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And Jonah said, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will be calm. 
I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. So as we read this passage today, this story would have popped into the mind of everybody in the room. And I want it to pop into your mind. Because when we hear the story of Jesus, what we'll realize is that Jesus is so different than Jonah in every way. And he's even different than the sailors. So now I want to read to you the passage from today. Mark 4, starting in verse 35, says this. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him, uh, they took him with, uh, within the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? See how those stories are so related? Let's zoom in a little bit more. Jesus hops in a boat, which he seemed to like to do, with a group of fishermen who had traveled this same sea, the Sea of Galilee, many times. So they were, they were quite familiar with this sea and the storms that could swirl on this sea and how to navigate and how to use a boat well. There's probably about 15 or so of them. That's about the size of one of these first century fishing boats. And there are other boats with him. And Mark puts this into the text because he wants us to remember that there were so many people that were intrigued with Jesus that others followed in this caravan of boats. I think the other thing that's interesting is that Mark brings up this pillow. And why, why is the pillow so important? I remember many years ago I bought a Sabakawi pillow. Did you guys ever buy one of those? Spent a lot of money on a pillow. Pillows are important. You should really focus on what kind of pillow you use. If you're not getting a good night's sleep, you should get a new pillow. <laughs> but the pillow is so important in this story because it shows that Jesus is quite calm because he's laying right where he began. He's not cowering underneath the stern of the boat, he's just sleeping. He's just gone to bed. He's quite calm, but his disciples are quite terrified. Now, are they overreacting? It's a good question. I don't think that they are. 
If you study the Sea of Galilee, or if you were to go to the Sea of Galilee, even today, it's known for its sudden storms. It was surrounded on all sides by mountains, and so uh, when a large storm front would move in, the wind would, would sweep in, almost get trapped within the basin where the sea was. And so it's known for sudden and severe storms. Even today on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, there's parking lots. They're right uh, close to, to the western shore there. And there are warning signs in the parking lots that say, be careful to leave your car because of flash floods. Because the wind could rise up so quickly and so uh, powerfully that it could actually swamp your vehicle. The other thing that you have to remember is that for Jews... They're not the Vikings, okay? They're not super comfortable with uh, seafaring. And so the sea became known to the Jewish people uh, as sort of a personification of evil. And so when you would talk to the Jews, they, they would uh, use uh, the sea as almost another name for death itself. And so some of you may remember when you read in the book of Revelation and it says, in the new heavens and the new earth there will be no sea. And you may say, that's weird. The water's kind of nice. Why would God get rid of that in the new heavens and new earth? It's not saying that there'll be no water. What he's saying is that death will be no more because the sea had become a personification of death itself. And so when we think about the sea and about evil and about the truth of this storm that had come upon these boats, the fear and the despair, it's both warranted and it's real. And so what we have here, and it's, it's hard to put ourselves into the text, but this is an extremely raw situation. And even the detail that Mark gives us makes us even think that this, this is an eyewitness account of just how terrible this situation was. This also explains this idea of the sea being evil. It also explains why we see Jesus rebuking the wind. And this word rebuke is the same Greek word that's used three times in Mark when Jesus casts out an evil, unclean spirit from someone who is possessed. And so what we begin to see here is that Jesus rebuking the wind is, is far more than just Him calming the storm but he's showing that he has power over any evil in the world. He does it with the evil spirits, and he also does this with the forces of nature that themselves have been associated with evil. Now when he does this, when he has power over the wind, guess who he's like? Guess who else also has power over the wind? God himself. And so actually what we have in this story and in the two stories that will follow where we'll see Jesus casting out a legion of demons from a man and the story after that where he raises a young child from death is that Jesus has authority over all things just like God. And just like God he is here with us. And so this story, it's, it's so much more than a simple rescue story, although it's that. It's so much more. It's what scholars would call an epiphany story. 
And the Greek word epiphany means to appear. And so this is, this is uh, in the classic Greek sense, epiphany would mean uh, when there would be a manifestation, an appearance of a deity. And so that's why this story gets a title as an epiphany story because it is one of those stories in which Jesus shows himself to be God with us. Just like God in Genesis hovered over the seas and created out of them. Just like God at the Red Sea parted it that the Israelites might walk through. Right here, Jesus shows that he himself has the power over nature. Now this is so important to see. Notice that Jesus doesn't call upon God to calm the sea. That's what Moses did in the Exodus. He calls upon God to make a way through the sea. He's not like Elijah and praying that God would come and have power over nature itself. But Jesus simply Himself rebukes the wind and the storm. And it's so important to see that, that, that Jesus has the power in Himself. He's not just some great prophet, but He Himself is God. You see how different and unique that is from the story of Jonah? You see that the sailors call upon their gods and every god and then eventually the god of Jonah to try to get God to stop the wind? Well, Jesus doesn't need to do that because He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He can help us Himself. That's why we call it an epiphany story. That's really what this story is about. Jesus revealing Himself to be God. Now, the funny part of the story is this. The funny part of the story is this. Notice that they call him teacher. The storm is raging. He's asleep on the pillow, perfectly calm. And they go to him and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now this word teacher is really, really important to understanding sort of the irony of the situation. It's the first time in the Gospel of Mark that his disciples call him teacher. Now it's true that Jesus was a teacher, but in them calling him teacher, They're sort of diminishing who he is because he is actually the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, Emmanuel. And they call him teacher. And I think Mark's pointing out something very fundamental to the story here. When the disciples go to Jesus, they're going to their teacher. Now, how many times have you gone to your math teacher and asked him to calm the storm? How many times have you gone to your... English lit prof and said, hey, could you just make sure it doesn't rain on my wedding? We don't go to our teachers to do the impossible. Though teachers are great, they're not God. And so they come to him and they say, teacher, do you not care? They're not actually asking him to calm the storm. They actually don't know that he can do that. In their fear and their trembling, They've actually misidentified who he is, but they go to him nonetheless and ask him to help. Now, maybe they're asking him to just grab a pail and shovel water that's taking over the boat. That might be what they're asking. Like, do you not care? Grab a rope. Grab a bucket. You're dying too. Or maybe 
They're just going to him, even though they don't know what he might do. But I don't think that they're going to him thinking that he can calm the storm. And the reason I don't think that is because of the end of the passage, where they're astonished that he's actually calmed the storm. They look at each other and they say, who is this that the wind obeys him? You see that? It's funny because they get something so much greater than they asked for. So while the disciples in this story don't look great, their lack of faith is sort of highlighted, and Jesus sort of calls them out, even though that's true, they very much act in the right way in this story. According to the faith that they have, they act in the right way. And that is to go to Jesus. And their action is incredibly revealing for us. It's actually prescriptive. So often I feel like I must know exactly what to ask Jesus when I go to him. That I have to have it figured out before I ask. Or that God will only do exactly what I ask him to do. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing different. And that's just not the case. In fact, in the Christian life, faith in action is not about having all the answers. It's, it's not about never asking wrongly or never asking with full faith or pitching the perfect plan to God to get his investment. Instead, the Christian life or faith in action is simply turning towards Jesus when you don't know and when trusting is hard. But you trust that whatever Jesus does will be the right thing. That's actually what faith in action looks like. So while this account sort of highlights at this point in the story how small the faith of the disciples is, I think it also highlights that their faith, even though it's a seed, is functioning as it should. So we have to remember that the gospel is this. We are slowly dying. That our sin is like a disease. It's like water pouring over the sides of our vessel. And that eventually, it will consume us. Eventually, it will take our ship. And we cannot save ourselves. But... When we realize that we can't save ourselves and we turn to Jesus, we realize He can save us. That He has actually done the one thing that can stop the water from taking us down. Maybe you feel like your faith is so small or maybe you're not even sure you have faith. Maybe you have lots of doubt, lots of questions, lots of anxiety, and even despair. Maybe you don't know where your life is headed. Maybe you don't know which way your career should go. Maybe your marriage is rocky. Maybe you're not sure where to invest your time and energy and talent. 
Here's what you need to do. Locate Jesus. Figure out where He is. Where He's working. And even if you're not sure who He is or what He can do, you find Him, you get near to Him, and you ask Him to help you. You ask Him to save you. You could say it like this. You don't actually even figure out who Jesus is until He starts to save you. And so turning to Him, even when your faith is so small and you're not even sure if it's a real thing, turning to Him is that first act of faith in action. And as He saves you, you begin to realize He's God. This week as I was thinking about this story of water flooding into a boat in the midst of a storm and people crying out for help and feeling like Jesus wasn't helping. Um, probably because I'm in a state of nostalgia, an old song came to mind. A song that I used to remember hearing in the car with my dad. And uh, You may have heard some other works of this gentleman played as you walked in. Great song by Phil Collins called In the Air Tonight. And I don't know if you know much about the. It's a chilling, haunting song. It, it's, it's an incredible song. I mean, I, on Spotify right now, this song was written in the early 80s, uh, 30 years before Spotify even existed. And on Spotify right now, it's been listened to 139 million times. I mean, could you imagine writing a song that 35 years later people were listening to, the next generations were listening to? I mean, this song is truly an iconic song, one of the most iconic songs ever. Um, and there's something uh, of a story that has circulated behind this song. Let me read you a couple of the lyrics of the song. Uh, it goes like this. If you told me you were drowning, I would not lend a hand. I've seen your face before, my friend, but I don't know if you know who I am. Well, I saw what you did, or I was there, well, I was there, I saw what you did, I saw it with my own two eyes. You can wipe off that grin, I know where you've been, it's all been a pack of lies. And uh, this song is sort of so haunting that people, I think, tried to figure out, what is he talking about? <laughs> and until this week, I wasn't sure if it was true or an urban myth. Turns out, it's an urban myth. And Phil Collins himself admits the story behind the song is not true. And there's actually three variations of the story. But the story I heard is that this song was written about when Phil, or that, that Phil Collins was a young boy and his friend was swimming. And his friend began to be taken under by the toe. And, and, and Phil was so small that he couldn't help. So he ran up to the shore and there was a stranger walking down the beach. And, and he came up to the stranger and he grabbed his hand and he said, You've got to help. My friend is drowning. And the man said, he'll be fine, and walks away, and, and Phil Collins' friend ends up drowning. And the story goes that once Phil became a big 
I'll, do you like how I call him by just his first name? <laughs> We're very close, me and Phil. Um, is that he was, uh, you know, he was so haunted by this that, that he wrote this song and that he, that he hired a private investigator. He knew what the man looked like and he, and he found this man. And he invited him to one of his concerts and he gave him a VIP pass and he sat him in the front row. And he began to sing this song. I can feel it coming in the air tonight. And he had the spotlight turned on this man and he sang him this song. Turns out it's not true. <laughs> but that was the myth. Let me just play you, let me just play you a little bit of the song. So in case you don't know how the song goes, you'll, when you hear it come on the radio, you'll think of this story of Jesus, because it's always good to think of Jesus whenever Phil Collins comes on. Okay, so play, Kurt, play me a little bit of this song. Just listen to these lyrics. this song so iconic? Why does it stir in the soul? I, I was thinking about this this week. And even though it's not true that this happened, I think, I think it strikes a, a chord with a very deep emotion that we have. In fact, I think that many people feel this way about God. That in the moment of greatest need, in the moment that they needed help the most, that they cried out to God, they tugged on His hand, but He wasn't there, and He didn't come, and He didn't help. I mean, many of us, of the 139 million people that have listened, maybe not all unique listens, but Maybe they're singing this, God, this song to God. I mean, the reason I think that is because my story has something similar to this. If you know my story, a little over 10 years ago, my sister was killed in a bicycling accident. I got a phone call from my dad, and I walked into the back alley of this a row of sports bars that I was hanging out at St. Patrick's Day, 2007. And I remember crying out to God. Crying out to help that this couldn't be true. And I had a choice in that moment. And I think all of us have that choice in our moment of greatest need. And in, in that moment, I could either turn to God or I could slander his name for letting this happen. 
And by the grace of God, by the seed of faith that was in me, I chose to turn to God, not because I fully understood, not, not without fear, not without anger, not without doubt, but that seed of faith was working in me to make me turn to the one place that I, that I needed to turn in that moment. Just like in the story, Jesus helped me. But He didn't help in the way I wanted Him to help. Or the way I asked Him to help. I wanted Him to save Kim that day. To bring her back. That's what I thought He should do if He were God. But He didn't do that. He didn't. But He helped. And if you know my story, there came a moment after about 25 minutes of crying out, how could this be? Don't you see that I'm drowning? Don't you know that I can't survive this? I sat down, my back was against a chain link fence, and, and I had a peace, a still that came over me that is there's like nothing I've ever had before. Jesus said, be still. And he calmed the storm that was going on in me. And he helped me. And, and he gave me a message from Kim to ask all those that she loved to consider Jesus. That's where we get the name of our church. That's why I talk about considering Jesus so much. He delivered this message to me in the, in, in, in the calm of the storm. And I look back on it now and I see His sovereign plan was so much bigger and so much better than what I thought I needed in the moment. I see His plan at work in my wife's face every time I look at her because I would never have met her. I see it in the face of my son. I see it in each and every one of your faces because that day I did not know what God would do. How He would redeem that story. And as I look back now, even though I cried out for help, and He helped in a way that I, I didn't even ask for in the moment, I look at what He's done, and I know more than I did then that He is God. I cried out that day for help. And He helped in a way I didn't expect. But because I turned towards Him and not away from Him, I got to see Jesus' divinity more clearly than I ever had before. And my faith grew. So in this passage, when Jesus says to the disciples, do you still have no faith? Does he actually think that they have no faith? No. He knows that they have faith. They're following him when others wouldn't. He's using uh, hyperbole here in order that their faith might grow. He's really saying, is your faith so small? Let me help you grow it. 
And so he lets them go through this challenging experience so that this seed of faith that was planted in them as a gift from God might begin to grow. And why does he do this? Why does he let his son, why does God let his son go through this storm? Why does Jesus let the disciples go through this storm? Because he knows that their faith needs to grow in order for what's coming next. That in fact, there's like this spiral story that you see in the Gospels of this cycle happening. God allows the disciples with their small faith to go through something so that they might see that he's actually much more than they thought, so that their faith might grow, so that what comes next, they continue to walk with him and follow him. And the spiral goes all the way down until Jesus is hanging from a cross, he's buried in the grave, he rises on the third day, and he appears to them. And the final epiphany happens. And they realize with the bigness of the faith that they need that yes, Jesus is God with us. And they needed all of that, including the final appearance of the resurrection because it was their job to go into the world and tell them that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah. That's a big job, and it needed a big faith. And Jesus continually takes them through this cycle of revelation and epiphany to know that it's true. So let's take, let's take a closer look, and I want you to see, see how this spiraling pattern works. Just, just see the parallels here. On the boat, Jesus lays in silent slumber as fear and despair grips the disciples. But greater faith will be needed when on the cross Jesus hangs in silence and fear and despair grip the disciples. On the boat, Jesus' head lays on a pillow as the world around him shakes and his friends feel like they're literally going to drown. But greater faith will be needed when he lies in the tomb. Jesus' head on a pillow as the world around him shakes and his friends are drowning in sorrow. But God in his perfect timing, on the boat, Jesus rises and rebukes the storm, and his friends see in a fresh way that he is God with us, and their faith increases that they might move forward. And at the tomb, Jesus will rise and rebuke death and sin and the devil, and his friends will see in a fresh way that he is God with us, so that they can move forward and start the movement that continues to this day to shape the world for good. You see that? And this is the exact same cycle that he will take us through in our life. Faith is not the absence of fear or doubt or understanding, but the ability, hear that, but it's the ability to turn to God and not away from him when fear, doubt, or despair show up in your life. God actually allows these storms to come so that this seed of faith 
will grow up in you for the mission that He set before you. And each time you turn to Him, your faith will grow. And as you watch Him work, often in ways that you don't expect or even ask for or desire for Him to work, time after time, once you see what He has done, you will come to the conclusion that Jesus is actually God with us. I hope you think back upon the storms in your life. Maybe you're in one right now and you turn to Jesus and you realize that He's ready to save. Maybe not in the way you expect Him to save, but He will not let you down. He will not forsake you. He is with you even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father God, we, in honesty, cry out for help. Maybe we don't even know who you are. Maybe we're confused. Maybe we doubt. God, give us the ability to turn to you that we might see you work in our life and then know that you are God. And then see that you have power over nature, over sin, even over death itself. Give us the faith, even though it's small, the faith needed to turn to You. I pray that if there's someone in the room tonight, God, that that doesn't have faith, that You'd give them that gift right now. That they don't have to understand everything about You to turn to see Your face. God, we pray the gift of faith upon these people here now. Begin to grow their faith as they trust in you in this life and for the life to come. It's in your son Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God with us, that we pray. Amen.